Um, <clears throat> so today I'd like to start by going back to my main thesis, I suppose, that I've mentioned on Friday evening when, no, Saturday evening when we began, and once or twice since then. And that is to go back to this question, what is it in the Buddha's teaching that we find in these earliest texts that is distinctively his own vision and not something that he simply adopted or taken on board from the prevailing religious culture of his day. <clears throat> and it seems to me that there are four um, points that stand out. There may be others. I've yet to find any yet. But the four points that stand out. The first is the principle of... Uh, dependent origination, or how I've translated it, conditioned arising, or we could say conditionality, or contingency. In other words, what is declared in the very first account of the Buddha's own awakening, that he has a, he's left behind a place and he has arrived at a ground and he calls that ground Paticca Samupada, an open field of conditioned events. The second point is the, the process of a path, specifically an eightfold path, and even more specifically, an eightfold path that is entered or arrived at by means of fully knowing dukkha, in other words, embracing that feature of the conditioned world, which leads to a falling away of certain graspings, clingings, cravings that um, are characterized by greed, by hatred, by fear. And that dropping away of craving or grasping leads to moments of openness, of stillness, of freedom, of peace, in which another possibility of living in this conditioned world opens up. And that's this eightfold path that, as I mentioned earlier, he likewise sees as the, the template or the road that leads to a whole other way of, of living in this world, as a society as well as as an individual. The third point <clears throat> that is distinctive is the practice of mindfulness. Mindfulness um, as a way to attend to the specific phenomena of life as they impinge upon our senses, what we we see and hear and smell and taste and touch and feel and think. Whatever it is that comes our way, that presents itself to us through our senses as well as through our emotions and through our mind, which again is characterized by conditionality, impermanence, flux, 
contingency. And so the third point, mindfulness, is the strategy to come into a more direct, um, a more immediate encounter with the phenomenal changing world itself. And fourthly, which is a point we'll come to today, is the, the power of self-reliance or autonomy. In other words, as we saw yesterday, that when entering into this path, you achieve a degree of autonomy. You know for yourself now, rather than have to appeal to the authority of some, <clears throat> some teacher or some tradition or some text. And that gives you an independence from the opinions of others, as the texts uh, describe it. And there I go, appealing to a text, you see. <clears throat> so these, um, these four features, I think we've covered uh, most of them now, and you can begin perhaps to see how they all kind of weave together. They're not four separate points. One could almost say that they are four facets of a single vision. Contingency, a path, mindfulness, and self-reliance. So what this, um, what this points to, I feel, is that uh, the Buddha begins his whole uh, teaching, his whole, um, his whole career, if that's not too pejorative a word, as a teacher, with this um, radical exposition of life as an open field of events. There's nothing deeper than that. There's nothing higher than that. And I think it's indicative of our, uh, perhaps our religious culture, be it Christian, be it Hindu, wherever it might come from, that, that somewhere within us we're looking for something more. We want there to be some kind of deeper ground or some sort of animating spirit or animating intelligence. We may call this God. That's probably the, the most usual term. Something that is other, radically other than this field of events that gives it its, it, its, uh, its origins, that gives, it, it, that gives that field its raison d'etre, its... its uh, um, its meaning, its future, its purpose. It's quite uncomfortable for us to dispense with those sorts of metaphors, but possibly because in our own inner experience, we, it, it seems um, almost undeniable that there is something witnessing what's going on here, something that doesn't appear to change, some kind of awareness, some kind of, of um, uh, point of view that's been with us ever since we can remember anything. It seems to us that from our first memory as a child, right up until this moment now, the same observer has been observing it all and responding to it. There seems to be a fixed point in here somewhere, 
that we may call our true self or our or that spark of divine consciousness that um, animates us in our depths. And as we saw in in uh, our very brief sketch of Upanishadic um, philosophy, this deep sense of self or consciousness is identical to this transcendent reality of God. And that's what the Buddha is, a, is I think, very explicitly leaving behind. He's opening up another vision of how human beings can live in this world. He describes this in a number of ways. Much of, his, uh, much of these, uh, uh, these categories and lists that we're perhaps familiar with when we look into Buddhist writings are often just ways of giving us another handle on what this field of contingent events is like. The five aggregates that you've probably come across, uh, form, uh, feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. That's simply a way of making more intelligible and manageable this field of events. Everything within the five aggregates um, is likewise impermanent and contingent and so forth and so on. Or we can see it in a rather more complex model, that of the interrelationship between consciousness and name and form. Name and form being shorthand for uh, the multiplicity of of, of outer and inner events of which we are conscious. And the Buddha seems to understand these two as inseparable. You can't speak of consciousness independently of this field, and nor is this field really intelligible or, um, or, or, or expressible without the presence of some awareness of it. You can't separate the two out. That, I think, might be one of the, the key insights that the Buddha had. Rather than thinking of consciousness as being somehow prior or more important or more central, or rather than seeing the material world as more basic, more fundamental, he sees the two as really um, inextricable one from the other. There are many statements in the early text where he says, for example, that the person who sees dependent origination sees the Dhamma. And the person who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. So there's a clear identification with with his own awareness, that of the Buddha, of the Dhamma, and of contingency. These three terms more or less go hand in hand. Now some people might say, well, isn't this all really rather bleak? There's nothing but this world of contingent events just coming and going, rising and passing away. Is is that all there is? Well, you see, I think this vision, if placed, if presented as a sort of quasi-scientific account of things, it is a bit flat. But what is crucial in the uh, Buddha's teaching, though, is not just descriptions of things, but also 
uh, strategies and practices that bring us into another kind of relationship with these things. And again, I would suggest that the key idea here is that of mindful awareness and attention as we're doing on this retreat. That as we calm the mind and still the racing thoughts and open our senses to what is presenting itself to them, after a while that rather flat veneer of familiarity begins to break down. And some of the questions have pointed to that. You know, what is a thought, really? What is a feeling? As we go um, closer and closer, more intimately into these apparently rather obvious and not hugely interesting things, that fixed view begins to break down, begins to dissolve. And this field of events becomes more and more mysterious and strange. What in the romantic uh, language of the romantic poets would be considered to be sublime. There's the experience of sublimity. Sublimity is different from, from beauty. It's somehow more, um, more overwhelming. Um, Edmund Burke the Irish political philosopher, defined the experience of the sublime as that of what is simultaneously fascinating and terrifying. Uh, there's something, for example, about being adrift on a great ocean at night or staring into the starry heavens or being in the midst of a an earthquake or a tornado or something. There's something fascinating about that. And yet at the same time, it's very scary. We can't take our attention away from it. We're attracted to it. But at the same time, we're slightly unnerved and unsettled by it. And I think that that too is another way of talking about what it means to fully know dukkha to fully know suffering. Again, suffering is really the wrong word, but I can't find a better one. In other words, this this encounter with the first um, truth of dukkha uh, uh, brings us to a point of experiencing the phenomenal world as sublime, as as, um, incapable, and this is another definition of the sublime, incapable of being contained by logic and reason, by conceptual categories. Uh, The the experience of the world in these moments exceeds our capacity to represent it in words or, or descriptions or definitions. It's excessive. And this, I think, is often a, 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 the kind of experience we find on retreats. When the mind becomes more still, when we open our attention to just the, the simple things of life, something strange happens. The, the, the experience becomes somehow intensified. It, it moves us in a way that poetry might move us. It beca- you know, we, we, we can contemplate the, 
the, the, the tracery on the back of a leaf um, as though it's the most extraordinary thing we've ever seen. Uh, this again is very, very powerfully um, uh, expressed through uh, poetry that we find in Zen Buddhism particularly, <clears throat> but poetry in all traditions. It's, it's language at its limit that tips us into or suggests um, this experience that in other contexts is called that of the sublime. So in other words, here we have a, 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 a way of seeing the world that makes no appeal to anything transcendent or ultimate or absolute and yet does not um, preclude experiences that in other contexts we would call spiritual or religious or even mystical. In other words, within this vision there is also um, great depth great intensity, but not one that feels that the source of that intensity or depth comes from outside, from some greater power, some transcendent other. Now all of this gives rise to the question then of the role of the person or the self within this field. Because the person too is simply another um, configuration of these changing, transient, contingent events. So, going back to the passage I cited earlier, the discussion the Buddha has with Vachagota, Vachagota asks the Buddha, Is there a self? Buddha remains silent. Then there's no self. Buddha remains silent. Vachagota goes away. Ananda, the Buddha's attendant, says, well, why didn't you say something? That poor man. He's confused now. And the Buddha says, well, if I'd said there is a self, that would have made him entertain ideas of some sort of transcendent ego, some sort of permanent me. And if I'd said that there's no self, that would have led him into nihilism and despair. So the idea of the middle way, the middle path, is not just about what we've described, these eight uh, aspects of the path, but also it describes this philosophical understanding of a contingent world in relation to who I am who you are, the person cannot be reduced either to some kind of fixed thing, nor can the person be intelligibly um, eliminated from the story and the picture altogether. So what the Buddha is uh, presenting us with is a, a processual understanding of the nature of the person. The person is likewise um, something that emerges and grows and evolves within the context of these contingent events. Now, a passage I think that illustrates this quite explicitly 
is Dhammapada verse 80. Now, Dhammapada verse 80 uh, reads as follows. Just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher or an arrowsmith manufactures an arrow, just as a carpenter fashions a piece of wood, atanam damati pandita, the, the sage pandita, Dhammati tames Atanam self. Atta, same as in Anatta, not self. And Atanam, I hate to get technical here, but Atanam is the accusative singular. And if any of you who have studied Latin probably know what that means. It means it's the direct object of the verb. It means that the word Atta here, self, is stands in the same relationship to the pandita, the wise person, as does the field to the farmer, the arrow to the fletcher, and the block of wood to the carpenter. Now, in each of these um, analogies, you find effectively a relationship between um, a person and um, a context, an object, a field, an arrow, uh, an unformed piece of wood. And this is a metaphor for the self. The self is like a field. The self is like the components of an arrow. The self is like a block of wood. And the self, therefore, becomes a task... That's the important point. The self becomes a task. The self is not something you are, but it is something you do. I think on on the basis of passages like this, we could argue, I think, that the Buddha presented a philosophy of action, of doing something. You don't just assume the self to be something given, either by God or by society or whatever. But yourself is a possibility. Yourself is a field of action. And again, the Buddha seems to choose his metaphors carefully. If we think of each of these metaphors, we get a, a sense of what this task of what we might call self-creation which is a term, I think, first used by Emerson in his philosophical writings in English. We get a sense of what this, pro- what, what this task might entail and what the consequences of, of, of fulfilling that action will result in. A field. Now, an unirrigated field is one in which crops do not grow well if at all. There's something barren about an unirrigated field, something parched, something lifeless. But by carving channels around or through the field, you allow water to permeate into the soil. 
in order that plants can then thrive. So again, I don't think it's an accident that we once again have a metaphor of water entering the stream. This is about allowing the water of life, one might say, to flow freely. And I think the whole notion of freedom and, uh, and, and bondage or imprisonment or trappedness is one that runs right through the canon, where the Buddha is a symbol, as it were, of a life that's freely flowing, whereas his counter-image, that of Mara, is one in which life is blocked. Mara, of course, means, in a psychological sense, it means that that, uh, intractable uh, grip we have on the conception of me, the ego. That grip, that grasping, is not just a cognitive mistake, but actually it freezes us. It somehow uh, locks us into a fixed position from which it's very difficult to really live. We're somehow paralyzed at some level, anesthetized. So the notion of a path, of entering a stream, of irrigating a field, all of these metaphors suggest uh, a loosening up of what blocks us and the possibility of what can give us life coming into being. So the self is like a field. How then do we irrigate it? Well, one argument would be that everything that we do as part of this path, is a form of irrigation. I mean, a simple example would be, would be the idea of mindfulness. If we train ourselves in mindfulness, if we get used to doing it, if it becomes something more and more natural to us, it's as though we have been sort of carving an irrigation channel to the point whereby a mindful response becomes the spontaneous response. Nowadays, this has a a curious parallel with some research being done in neuroscience that shows that if people meditate for 20 or 30 years, then that begins to literally alter the neural pathways in the brain. So even that language resonates with this idea of irrigation. We're opening up other channels within us. We're opening up other possibilities, other forms of behavior, ways of being in the world. And that allows other possibilities to emerge. The field, sorry, the the self is then compared to an arrow. Now, the difference between an arrow and a field and a block of wood is that an arrow is is something put together from diverse components. You have to have a feather, uh, a nice piece of straight wood, uh, some sort of metal uh, tip. And the arrow becomes um, an arrow by the combination of these various elements. Now that also seems to point to how we too 
uh, the person, the self, too, can somehow be reconfigured. We can, as it were, put ourselves together in a slightly different way. We don't have to remain uh, stuck in the particular set of uh, psychological, um, cultural and other elements that we consider to be our, our makeup, that we're not fixed in the particular configuration that we are right now. That can be changed. We can somehow organize our lives in a way that is going to be more conducive to our well-being and the well-being of others and perhaps the well-being of the world. That we are uh, not a fixed menu. We can um, alter, we can change, we can develop certain strengths, we can perhaps work at letting go of certain neuroses or weaknesses. That we, again, are a task to be performed not something that is fixed for all time and that will never change. I mean, how often do you say to yourself when you're really frustrated with someone, you say, yeah, but this is how I am. I'm this kind of person. This, this is really me. I'm an angry person. I can't do anything about it. So this is really a challenge to that objection. Well, maybe you can do something about it. Maybe you can change and again, there's so many examples of people who we've known perhaps in one part of our lives. We meet them again 10, 15 years later and we say, my God, you've really changed. The, the, the person it's most difficult to see that taking place in, of course, is us. Because we're with us, you know, 24-7. No getting away from it. And it's actually quite difficult to notice incremental change. Because we're the one who's doing the changing. It's often only when we meet someone we haven't met for a long time that we get some feedback, ho hopefully positive, <laughs> that indicates actually we have changed. Um, recently, I've been in my writing has led me to read over some of my diary journal entries I made when I was in my 20s. Thank God I've changed from that. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't want to be that kind of person again. <laughs> and then there's the image of the, of the piece of wood that the carpenter fashions and works. And this too, of course, I don't really need to explain it. It seems quite obvious, really. The, the piece of wood, this rough piece of wood, can through the expertise of a joiner or a carpenter or a sculptor, be turned into something else, be turned into something beautiful. And the interesting thing about this image is that the stuff of the wood remains the same. It's not as though you don't have to add anything. You just reshape, refashion what's, all, what's already there, like a piece of clay, for example. So again, it's a slightly different version of the other analogies. But all of the analogies have to do with performing a task and in so doing, changing something into something else. In other words, it describes a process. So in the same way, we have um, the idea of a person. A person is not a fixed thing. A person is not just 
a fiction or an illusion, something that doesn't really exist. A person is a process, a task, something we do. And as we do that, we differentiate ourselves more and more distinctly. We become individuated. I mean, what is striking about um, many of the figures that I would personally admire, someone like the Dalai Lama, for example, is that he might go around the world talking about emptiness and there's no self and all this stuff. But in fact, he's one of the most highly differentiated individuals I've ever met. So there's no contradiction, in my mind, between the notion of a fully individuated person and the Buddhist idea of not-self. You won't actually find anywhere in the text where the Buddha says there is no self. A lot of this is a translation error with this word anatta, anatta, anatman, which is atta, self, with the privative a, which means not or no. So people say, ah, the Buddha said there is no self, anatta. But in fact, he always uses the word anatta as a, um, as a characteristic, as a, as a quality of something. He says, sabadama anatta, all things are not self. He's not saying there is no self. And so the, what, everything that constitutes us is not me. I am not reducible to those things. I am, as it were, as they say in Gestalt psychology, I am not equal to the sum of those parts. And yet I do not exist in any way independently of them. Now this is an idea that is um, one that when I was training in the Tibetan tradition, um, this is very much how Tsongkhapa, the founder of the Geluk school, presented the understanding of emptiness and not-self. Uh, he too makes, enormous, um, makes an enormous point about the importance of recognizing the nature of the functional person or self. And the, the idea of emptiness is about freeing us, not from any notion of self, but freeing us from those fixed ideas we have about who we are that actually prevent us from changing, that keep us stuck in a fixed view of ourselves. Now this idea of self is, of course, um, the basis for the Buddha's understanding of the self as a social creature, as a social animal, because selves don't exist in a vacuum, in isolation, but selves are inevitably woven into a matrix of uh, community and society. So we can see how the, the Buddha's idea of, of contingency, dependent origination, gives rise to the notion of the path as a process, gives rise to the notion of the person as a process. But that then, of course, feeds into his whole vision of what kind of society, therefore, would um, he, he, he see 
as one that would optimize the capacities of the members of that society. And it's here where he takes issue with the traditional Indian doctrine of caste. The idea of caste or class, caste, varna, um, has to do with the idea that when God, Brahman, the unformed, gave rise to the world, this is the, you'll find this in the Upanishads primarily, in the Vedas too, that uh, the unformed becomes form, God becomes form. And in part of that process of becoming form, uh, Brahman becomes what's called the Mahapurusha, the great person. And the great person then breaks into four parts. The head becomes the priests, the arms become the ruling class, the body becomes the merchant class, and the legs become the workers. And so that is the theological basis for the Indian uh, idea of caste. In other words, your role in society, your social identity, is divinely ordained. It's fixed by God. If everyone could honor that and work according to their divine identity, then the world would be in harmony. That's the basic idea. And then the, then the Buddha comes along and he says, no one is born a Brahmin. A Brahmin is a Brahmin because of what he does. A farmer is a farmer because of what he does. And a craftsman, a craftsman because of what he does. A merchant, a servant, a thief, a, a soldier, a priest or a king. Each of them is what he is because of what he does. Uh, this is from the Sutta Nipata, which is one of the earliest uh, strata within the Pali Canon. And again, it's a very um, explicit affirmation of his understanding of self, but here within the framework of a society. <laughs> that our role in society, our relationship with others who also belong to that society, is achieved through what we do. There is no um, given identity. Of course, each person is born with particular temperaments and skills and gifts and so on. But each person has to, as it were, recognize what those skills and those gifts and those perhaps weaknesses are and then work with that through their actions to then become someone. A, a Brahmin or a farmer or whatever. And so we have here um, a vision of the person which also underpins a vision of another kind of society. So it all comes down in a, in a way to this substituting the idea of being with the idea of doing. And doing... Oh, rats, I didn't bring my text. Um, Never mind, I'm going to have to cite the next bit by heart. Um, the, the, the doing is, of course, um, a translation of the word karma, karma, 
Now, the Buddha also has a very different understanding of what karma means. Again, you will find throughout the canon occasions where someone would come up to the Buddha and say, my mother just died. What's going to happen to her after death? And the Buddha will say, oh, well, she will be reborn in XXY heaven, and then she'll spend a bit of time there, then she'll get reborn somewhere else, and then she'll come back as your great aunt or something. So he does, he does, uh, you know, he, he plays that game. He does um, console people um, in very much the language of the, the culture of his time. But there's a very um, striking text which again is tucked away at the back of the Sangyutta Nikaya. It's called the Shivaka Sutta, the discourse given to Shivaka. Now Shivaka was again one of these people like Vachagota, a wanderer, not a Buddhist. And he comes up to the Buddha and he says, look, there are many ascetics and Brahmins who teach that whatever it is that we experience is the result of our former actions. Now, um, what is it then that you, Master Gautama, teach? Is that true, that everything that we experience is the fruit of our former actions? Now, the curious thing about this question is that this, of course, is the official Buddhist point of view. It may not have been at the Buddhist time, but that's certainly how I was taught, that, that is pretty much orthodox Buddhism, that everything we experience, and, I, and Shivaka adds, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, is the result of our former actions. What does Master Gautama say to that? And Master Gautama, the Buddha, says, that's not how things are, Shivaka, at all. That what we experience arises out of eight different conditions. I may not remember all eight. The first one is bile. (laughs) The bile element, the phlegm element, the wind element, all three elements together, that makes four. Um, Unseasonable weather. We we know about that that, that one. I'm feeling depressed today because it's raining. Um, Five excessive exertion, what is nowadays called stress. Uh, Sixth, assault from somewhere else. I'm sorry, seventh, assault, being attacked or being interacting with some other person. And eighthly, former actions. So he does include it, karma, which is fairly obvious really, that much of what we experience is the result of what we've done. But to say that everything is the result of our former actions, the Buddha says, that goes beyond what is known in the world and what is understood in the world. So that's a very important point. He's basically saying, if you want to understand how it is that you experience what you experience, you need to look at all of the conditions of your life The first four conditions are basically uh, your state of health. Bile, phlegm and wind are what are called the three humors in Ayurvedic medicine. And that is, of course, the the classical 
um, form of medical science that would have been taught in places like Taxila and elsewhere and was well known in the Buddha's day. It continued, even modern Ayurvedic medicine in India, as in fact Tibetan medicine, is based on this idea of the three humors. Um, early medical traditions in Europe were much the same. And the idea is that if you are ill, this means that one of those humors has become out of balance. There's an excess of bile or an excess of phlegm. And medication, therefore, is about restoring the balance of the humors. And that's usually um, herbal medicines or nowadays Tibetans would use acupuncture and things like that. But in other words... The Buddha is saying what you experience is to a large degree got to do with how you are in your body. Uh, the third of these humors, by the way, wind or air, prana, has to do with um, your, your mental health. In Tibetan medicine even today, all mental health problems are seen to be due to an imbalance of the wind element. So it's not just, just, just about physical ill health. It has to do with your, the, the state of your organism, both as a physical and psychological uh, being. So the Buddha is putting a lot of emphasis here on what we would call health issues. And then external conditions, uh, the, the seasons, the weather, or your own excess of exertion or lack of it. Or simply what happens to you from the outside. Your country gets invaded by uh, some tribe from across the border. Or your um, economy collapses. And then only eighthly does he talk about your experience being the consequence of your former actions. Or karma. Now this is an enormously problematic text for Orthodox Buddhists. And um, if you look at the translation that wisdom publications have by Bhikkhu Bodhi, Bhikkhu Bodhi goes into one or two pages of, of basically um, th- theology to try and explain this away. Because it's so much against the, uh, the normative view. But I feel that it fits extremely well with those teachings which we can recognize as distinctively that of the Buddha. Uh, In the Kalama Sutta, he even goes as far as saying that, um, he says, even if there is no rebirth, even if there is no law of cause and effect, nonetheless what I have taught you will be for your optimal well-being. Now these passages admittedly are marginal you almost have the impression that they've somehow missed the censor's scissors because they somehow don't fit terribly happily with the mainstream orthodoxy. But it is also, from a historical critical perspective, a a fairly good indication that they are original because, for the simple reason it would have served nobody's interest in the Buddhist community to add them later. I think that's a very useful principle. When you get a passage in the text that says, 
the Buddha has these beautiful 32 major marks and light shines out of his eyes and he's the most wonderful thing since wholemeal japati. <laughs> then you could say, ah, oh, well, that was probably added on by somebody who wanted to make out the Buddha to be the greatest thing on earth. But when you find a passage which cuts against orthodoxy, where did that come from and why is it being remembered? Good questions. So, and, and the other point about the, the Sivaka Sutta is that the, even when talking about karma, about actions, the Buddha says that um, you can observe whether something is the result of an action or not because it's, it's known in the world. In other words, this is something you can actually understand. You can see it for yourself. You don't have to say, well, 95 million years ago when I was born as a something or other, then I did an action that caused the result now. The Buddha seems to be rejecting that whole way of looking at things in favor of seeing actions as things we do and of which we can observe their consequences. So karma becomes far more an ethical doctrine, also a doctrine of self-creation, what modern philosophers sometimes call a performative conception of self. So what kind of society then does the Buddha envisage? Clearly one in which um, caste has been uh, abolished. He gives um, a beautiful metaphor for this. Um, it's in the Udana, one of these earlier collections. And it's the metaphor of the ocean. He says, just as the, the great rivers of the earth pour into the ocean and in doing so lose their distinction. In other words, the Ganges is no longer the Ganges, the Yamuna is no longer the Yamuna. In the same way, when the great classes of human beings enter into my Dhamma Vinaya, my teaching and training, they too lose their distinctions. So when you become a member of the Sangha, of the community, you cease to be a Brahmin or a member of the ruling class or a worker or a merchant. That doesn't mean that you literally you know, stop running your shop. You may still function in that way in society, but the point is that that is not a role that is given to you at birth. It's not divinely ordained. It's a role that you have come to assume because of the skills that you have, the context in which you were raised, and all of those features. So the Buddha envisages a society in which there is a level playing field, effectively. It's a society of equality. It's an egalitarian society in which um, people are called upon or encouraged to, um, to develop their own role, their own social and personal identity within that context. It's what we would call nowadays a meritocracy. 
It's an egalitarian meritocracy. Now, of course, as we know from the history of India, that didn't happen. And in some ways, you see, Buddhism failed quite badly. The vision the Buddha had of um, an egalitarian meritocracy governed by principles that we've been talking about here of conditionality, a path, freedom from suffering, mindfulness, all of these values, which would, of course, be the governing principles that underlie such a society, that society never took, never even got a look in in India. And it's rather tragic in a way that when you go to India today, you find that this, these same issues are still um, tearing Indian society apart as they were two and a half thousand years ago. And we have, in fact, one of the most interesting uh, political and social movements in India today is that of the Dalits, uh, the so-called untouchables or ex-untouchables, who have now converted to Buddhism, largely through the influence of a man called uh, Bhimrao Ambedkar, who was the first minister of justice in independent India, uh, in Nehru's cabinet, who also chaired the committee that framed the Indian constitution. And although many of you may never have heard of Mr. Ambedkar, that movement he initiated in 1956, when he himself converted to Buddhism, has now become a very... Um, powerful grassroots and organized political um, movement um, that is pretty much on the verge now of probably entering into at least a coalition government at some point. You may not have heard of a person called Mrs. Megawati, but you will. (laughs) She's the head of the organization at the moment. So, so in a sense, it's coming full circle. Um, uh, this movement of uh, this social vision of the Buddha has been picked up now by uh, uh, millions of ordinary Indian people who are disenfranchised within a Hindu system. But the actual history of Buddhism in India before it disappeared was one in which this social vision was never realized. And again, exactly why that is, is another question, but the fact is it wasn't. Nobody really took it on board. No ruler was willing to really engage with that kind of vision of society. And Buddhism, Buddhists, it seems, particularly in the ordained community, became increasingly interested in, 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 in exclusively spiritual matters enlightenment and liberation and jhanas and things like that um, and became more concerned with somehow realizing some kind of absolute reality, some ultimate truth, getting out of the cycle of birth and death. In other words, staying very much within the frame of classical Brahminic orthodoxy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.